Good evening, and happy Halloween, friend. It is a beautiful night in the swamps of Florida. Listen to the bugs and frogs, the movement of the wetlands around us, the vacant night sky above. Cars may rumble in the distance, but here in this stillness is the perfect place for us to participate in the greatest of all Halloween traditions. Tonight, let's tell some ghost stories. I've always believed in ghosts. It's impossible for me to imagine feeling otherwise. Not because I've seen anything concrete or captured anything resembling absolute proof, but when you spend time in old buildings as often as I do, it's hard to not imagine those who came before. Whether it's in the old theater where I studied, where an old professor roams the long hallways, or the old mansion across the lake from me where the windows roll away and music could be heard in the orange groves, or the lighthouse by the water where a woman still watches the sea in all weather, or you visit Flagler's old home where a staircase ended his life, but which staircase is unknown. When you write about history, every story you tell is, in a sense, a ghost story. If your story goes back far enough, every member of that story has shuffled off their mortal coil. For a moment, we get to sit in their spirit, in a sense. We learn their birthday, their parents' names, their dreams and failures, their reputation and trials, their long life or sudden end. For a moment, in every episode of this show, we conjure them in that space between you and I. And eventually, we close the book, again, like sliding the Ouija board to goodbye, so the portal closes behind us. They're the past and we're the present, but for those few moments we spend in their company, our stories have folded together and their ghost sits with us wherever we are. If you listen to this show, if you love history, I'm sure you have a fondness for a place where the past and present live together. Graveyards. There is no better place where that is seen than in graveyards. I'm sure you feel a draw to them as I do. In my time writing this show, I've found names that disappear from history, their stories cut short, and I dream of roaming a graveyard, searching every stone until I find their name, to find them in death because I couldn't in life. You must take a moment for reverence whenever you enter a graveyard, of course. Everyone has their own tradition. I tend to be thankful for their time when I enter, and I always say goodbye when I leave. Some folks say that you should hold your breath when you drive by a cemetery. The old story says that the spirits will be jealous of the air in your lungs and they will haunt you. But I think the spirits get a bad rap. I tend to take my hat off if I'm wearing one or just stop and say hello. They're just people, after all, just in a different state than you and I. If you ever get to wander a graveyard, I suggest saying names on the tombstones. There's a good chance few people have said some of those names in a long time. I like to think they appreciate the acknowledgement. I know that I will. If you're lucky, you'll remember one of those names and learn the stories of those buried below your feet. Their truths can be illuminative, but their mysteries may also surprise us. Because for some of the buried dead we'll talk about today, their stories are completed, the truths of their lives laid out as numbers and events in the history books. But for some, their death only provided more mysteries, and their graves created myths that surround them in death. Some secrets, as they say, are taken to the grave. This week, in the Wait Fright Minutes Halloween special, we roam the cemeteries of Florida, searching for friends amongst the tombstones, listening to the bugs singing around us, the hum of air conditioners and frogs, the rumble of domestic life beyond the walls, as chilled air creeps into Florida. 
Fall feels unusual in our state, not quite cold or crisp, but slow and surrounding, every morning a little cooler until one night when our sun is gone, the night raises the hair on your arms and you hurry inside, yearning for the summer again. But it's October now, and though our leaves may not turn the color of pumpkins or fire, fall in Florida means a swampy darkness and more stories rising from the muck. Good evening, I'm Nick D'Alessandro, and this is the Wait Fright Minutes Halloween special. Settle in tonight because we're telling ghost stories. Grab an apple cider or a bowl of candy, and let's conjure some spirits tonight. Some friendly, some not so friendly. And when the story is over, we'll be sure to say goodbye. But first, let's slide the planchette to hello, and take a tour through some cemeteries, and meet some of our own peculiar ghosts. Cemeteries all over the world evoke ghost stories, especially here in Florida. We've had the honor of visiting a few burial grounds in Florida since we started this show. A few years ago, we got to visit my personal favorite cemetery in Florida, Talamado in St. Augustine. There we met the resident of the oldest marked grave in the state of Florida, a 16-year-old named Elizabeth Forrester. We will never know the oldest body buried under our soil, most are unmarked, but Elizabeth is the oldest date that we know for certain, and for that, we will remember her name forever. She died in 1798, a child buried in the old Spanish city, cemented in our history forever. Behind the iron gates of Talamado, Elizabeth rests. We took that trip to Talamado in 2020, seeking out Elizabeth and her fellow residents, but in the years I've created this show, I'm amazed at how many graves are hidden in plain sight, almost like their ghosts are just off-screen in episodes that may not have anything to do with them at all. For example, I made an episode back in 2019 about growing plants. I planted and grew a seed from soil and scratch and got some advice on how to do that from the folks over at Lou Gardens here in Orlando. If you take a trip to Orlando, Lou Gardens is always a worthwhile trip. It's a beautiful botanical garden with year-round events, and it's a few short steps from Audubon Park, one of the best neighborhoods in Orlando. But I went to Lou seeking their gardens and discovered a small graveyard hidden in the back of the property. Every time I visit now, I find myself stepping away from the garden to pay my respects and to remember the unusual history that led to these graves. Some of them are very old, sinking into the soil. You can only see the very top of them now. Some of their information is lost to the earth in which they are buried. But we know who's here. Just beyond the fence from a small neighborhood near the busiest region of Orlando, these dozen bodies rest. Mary and Sarah, William and Lula, Humphrey, John, Joshua, Josephine, and more. All related to the patriarch that anchors them to this place, David Mazel one of the first sheriffs of Orange County. His story is vast and complicated. He actually was the patriarch of a sort of Hatfield and McCoy type story here in Florida, a rivalry, a feud between families, but that is a ghost story for another day. Nevertheless, beneath the grass of one of Orlando's finest botanical gardens, David rests. We also have visited the ghost of my old college campus on this show a few years ago. I attended Rollins College in Winter Park, and our theater on campus was well known for its eponymous ghost. 
the Annie Russell Theater is home to who else but Annie Russell, a teacher at the college a century ago. The story goes that she roams the theater during rehearsals and performances, approving of shows, demanding a seat reserved for her, moving a door, expressing her review of the show, and even sending comforting messages for young students seeking guidance. I myself heard things in that theater, a knock on the ceiling, a male voice from an unknown origin, but those I went to school with say they saw or heard Annie, her wispy white form walking the seats, enjoying the shows long after her death. But Annie is not buried in Florida, is not buried in Orlando. Annie is buried in New Jersey, far from the theater she allegedly haunts. There is, however, a body buried on Rollins' campus. Two bodies. Meet Rex Beach, that is his actual name. Born in 1877, Rex and his family moved to Tampa, Florida when he was seven. His family moving as a part of the expanding Homestead Act that brought settlers from all over, grabbing up land to help develop the state at that time. Rex wound up attending Rollins College where, according to the Rollins Archive, he was a mischievous student, fighting against the rules of the college, including receiving punishment once for, quote, boating on Lake Virginia on a Sunday, end quote, Lake Virginia being the lake that borders the campus. He would eventually leave Rollins, though he was an editor for the newspaper Sandspur back in the day, the same paper that I wrote a few amateurish movie reviews for back in 2014. He even played for the baseball team, but he moved to Chicago before moving on to Alaska during the Klondike Gold Rush that brought numerous hopeful explorers north, searching for gold as they did in California 50 years earlier. He would visit Alaska off and on and would eventually write about his experience, beginning his long career as an author. Thanks to his success as a novelist, Rex would be given an honorary degree from Rollins, hilarious considering his rambunctious reputation on campus, and he would soon be the president of the Rollins Alumni Association, a hell of a guy to be given that title. But when Rex died, he was cremated, and the ashes of he and his wife, Edith, are interred on the same campus where he raised hell 50 or so years earlier. They named a building after him. My freshman dorm was named Rex Beach. You never hear ghost stories of Rex, however, though his remains reside on the campus, and his name is held in reverence by those who lived in that dorm in their very first year. For me, that's nearly a decade ago. But like I said, a grave hidden in plain sight, but no ghost stories to be had. There, in the heart of Rollins' campus, Rex rests. But our cemeteries are not so coy. The ghost stories are obvious and they stalk amongst the tombstones all over our state. I love when you're driving through Florida and you see signs that tell you, turn down this dirt road, there's an old cemetery back here. I'm always called to do so and perhaps I should do so more often than not. I bet there would be something to surprise me back there. Once, when I was at a party for a cousin's wedding, I was at a dock uh, on the east coast of Florida, and I stumbled along the waterway until I discovered a graveyard that I've never forgotten, hidden, almost unknown in its place back there. I promise to do an episode about it in the future because it's amazing what happens when you find a graveyard that you didn't even know was there, when you find the names hidden along the water. A lot of stories about ghost stories in Florida have familiar tropes. Mysterious fog, roaming orbs, disembodied voices, the usual. Most local cemeteries contain an apparition of sort. A man hanging from a tree, a child's spirit walking the gravestones, a spirit of a guard looking for something, anything in the night. But some 
get specific, very specific. In Cobb Cemetery, located in Okaloosa County alongside the Panhandle, the story goes that you can see a ghost only at one specific time of year and at one specific time of night. Quote, the ghost that is believed to haunt this cemetery is said to mostly show up in February around 1.24 a.m. End quote. Now that is a specific ghost. One month of the year at one specific time. They say around 1.24 a.m. How, how do you get around 1.24 a.m.? That, that is way too specific of a time on the clock. That is a picky ghost. There is, of course, the Devil's Chair in Casadega, a ghost who allegedly drinks your beer if you leave it there for him. In reality, it was a chair for a grieving husband to spend time with his deceased wife, a story that will be reminiscent to another you will hear later tonight. And there is the famous Huguenot Cemetery in St. Augustine, a cemetery called by some the most haunted cemetery in Florida. Right near the entrance to town, the cemetery was a counter to Talamada, which only buried Catholics. The Huguenot Cemetery was for Protestant burials and received its first burials during the Yellow Fever. There are many bodies there in such a small space, too many to name. But perhaps the most well-known story is someone who is not even buried there anymore, at least. That story belongs to John B. Stickney, who was a Union soldier during the American Civil War. He was involved in battles in, quote, Bull Run, Antietam, Fredericksburg, South Mountain, and Vicksburg, end quote. His letters are saved and detailed much of life as a Union soldier during the war. After the war, he moved to Florida and worked in law. I see different accounts of what he did in Florida after the war. I see some reports of him being a judge. They call him a judge in a lot of these sites. I also see him being listed as a state attorney or a district attorney for Florida in the years after the war. Nevertheless, he lived in Florida after the war. He worked in law, and then he took a trip north to Washington, D.C., departing from Florida. But apparently typhoid fever ended his trip early. His body was sent back from Washington to Florida, and he was buried in the Huguenot Cemetery in 1882. In 1903, however, his descendants wished him buried in Washington, D.C., so his body was exhumed and sent back to Washington, D.C., the place where his body was when he died, 21 years after his burial. But the story, according to Weird U.S., has an unusual wrinkle. Quote, Everybody was amazed to find that after 21 years, the judge was in an excellent state of preservation, but still dead, of course, end quote. I love that caveat by Weird U.S. His body was tampered with, however, in the process of moving him north, and his gold teeth were stolen. The story goes that despite Stickney's body being interred yet again in Washington, D.C., his spirit remains in Florida, roaming the original Huguenot Cemetery, his first burial site, looking for the gold teeth he lost 21 years after his death. Though he is buried in Washington, D.C., Stickney roams restless in Florida. But now I think it is time for me to tell you about Florida's most famous grave, Let's move the planchette to goodbye for now. Let's say farewell to Elizabeth Forrester and John Stickney, the Mizell family, and Rex and Annie, and the ghost who appears only at 1.24 a.m. in February in the Panhandle. Let's send them back to their resting places as the veil is thin between us now. But now that we've opened the door and conjured those wandering spirits to this place, let's invite in the White Witch of Tallahassee, a woman whose grave is so mysterious that the residents of Tallahassee created a narrative just for her and called her a witch. 
Let's meet her. Let's welcome her to the table for just a moment. Here is Elizabeth Bud Graham. The cemetery where Elizabeth is buried is even older than the state itself. We were still a territory all those years ago in 1829 when the cemetery was established. The town of Tallahassee in and of itself wasn't much of a town at this point at all. When it was settled as the location for the capital of the new American territory, it was mostly as a sort of compromise. Florida was still divided in many ways between the Panhandle residents living in Pensacola and the Atlantic Coast residents of St. Augustine. As the territory was settling itself, the leaders needed a place to meet, and traveling all the way back and forth proved too much of a commitment. Why not meet somewhere in the middle? So the quiet little spot developed over the years as it became the new capital of the burgeoning state between Pensacola and St. Augustine. Now, there was Tallahassee. The name Tallahassee is old and unusual. The Muskegon language is its origin. They referred to Tallahassee as the Old Town or the Old Fields because it had been used in the 1700s by the Creek people who fled into Tallahassee as the Europeans pushed them out of the states to the north of Florida. Tallahassee was the place where they once were, and so it became known as the Old Place, the Old Fields. Tallahassee is so old that its name predates its condition. When it was named that, it was under the pretense that people had already lived there once and then left. A place abandoned already. So in 1824, when Tallahassee was formed and became the territorial capital, a new place was built in a place already deemed old, vacant, empty. Soon, a cemetery would be needed as more people came to town, which meant more people would soon die within the city boundaries. The location was no accident. Quote, it is thought that the site was chosen because people had been using it unofficially as a burial ground, although some early Tallahassians are buried several hundred feet east of the site. End quote. Again, there was already something, already bodies beneath the dirt. Today, it's just a few blocks east of Florida State University, but in the frontier town days, it was west of downtown, the edge of Tallahassee. Today, it is Tallahassee's old city cemetery, but once it was a place where those who died in the city found their eternal rest. Like most southern cemeteries at this time, even in death, segregation persisted. Any black residents, whether they were enslaved persons or freed persons, they were buried separately from the white residents. The white residents were buried in the eastern half, and the black residents went to the west side of the cemetery, further from the heart of town. It's noted in Tally Guide, a blog with a great write-up about that cemetery, that this was a new type of cemetery for its time. Rather than a graveyard, which usually is attached to a church, the trends of cemeteries as almost public parks became prominent, so the natural green around the cemetery took over. Some at the time called it quote-unquote unkempt. Apparently animals roamed the green fields of the cemetery, pigs and other animals, stepping overhead. Strange days, to be certain, but the city acquired the cemetery in 1840, and the bodies, year by year, were added to the gravestones, and their stories accumulated. Stories of soldiers who died in the Second Seminole War, victims of the devastating yellow fever, governors and state representatives and Confederate soldiers and judges, 
Hugely important black figures from Tallahassee's history are buried here, including Reverend James Page, the first ordained black minister of Florida, a figure of such importance that we will surely make an episode about him in the future, conjure his ghost another time later on. But of all the consequential, unique, important people buried here, people with documented histories, a grave shrouded in mystery has become the cemetery's most visited, if not the most visited grave in all of Florida. Isn't that just human nature? The blank space calls to us, and there is perhaps no greater blank space that we have filled with myth and legend more than the life of Elizabeth Bud Graham, a woman whose grave is so captivating that in death she has become something that she never was in life, a witch. That's likely because of the design of her grave. It is a thick, short obelisk with carvings up and down and a stone wall making the plot distinct in the cemetery. There is a square that blocks it off from the others and in the center, the obelisk. She was only 23 when she died and her grave is, quote, one of the most expensive tombs in Tallahassee in the late 1880s, showcasing her family wealth and esteem, end quote. But none of this matters more than what's actually written on the stone a poem by the great American writer and poet Edgar Allan Poe. It's from his poem titled Lenore, a passage that reads the following. Ah, broken is the golden bowl, the spirit flown forever. Let the bell toll. A saintly soul floats on the Stygian river. Come let the burial rite be read, the funeral song be sung, an anthem for the queenliest dead that died so young, a dirge for her, the doubly dead in that she died so young. Edgar Allan Poe, one of the great American writers, wrote so many great Gothic epics in his time, some of the most compelling mysteries and horror stories alongside his excellent poems. I have been a longtime fan of one of his stories, The Telltale Heart. It is truly a classic of Edgar Allan Poe's writing. You probably read it in middle school, and if you are like me, it freaked the hell out of you then, and still does to this day. It's believed that some of Poe's more gothic stylings as a writer began with the illness and eventual passing of his wife. She was ill with tuberculosis at the age of 20 and passed away from the very same illness five years later. She was just 24 when she died, but suffered from that illness off and on for five years. According to biographers from the time, it made Edgar nearly insane. The potential loss of his spouse and her eventual death had a very negative impact on his mental health. When she was alive but sick, biographers suggest that Edgar was considering the possibility of her passing and wrote that poem, Lenore, in response to his feelings. So the poem is filled with grief about the idea of a woman lost, the queenliest dead, doubly dead that she died so young. The choice of poem for Elizabeth on her grave was apt, being that she was only 23 years old when she died from a heart condition that came on suddenly. She died on November 16, 1889. Her obituary notes the sudden and tragic nature of her death, adding that her husband, John Alexander Graham, was wrecked by her loss. Quote, the blow fell hard with crushing effect upon the young husband who loved and adored his wife with all the affection possessed by human nature, end quote. The elaborate gravestone with the Poe verse, the stone wall, the obelisk, it seems to me like a representation of the deep grieving of a husband, the same emotions that befell Poe a few decades earlier. But what's most astounding to me about Elizabeth's life is the legend that has followed her since her passing. Her stone has been in place for 130 years, and when she died, there were no stories surrounding her life. It was a young life, cut short, and that was all the tragedy you needed. 
But due to the nature of her grave with its elaborate design and gothic details, it caught the attention of people in Tallahassee. It's a college town, of course, and I imagine young people would wander the graveyards and would read her story, read the poem on her stone, and they begin to fill in the gaps. Because somehow, in the years after her death, Elizabeth began to be known as a witch. According to the Tally Guide blog, the language in the poem, which does remove a verse from the original Poe poem and changes a word or two, but is otherwise identical to the original poem, clearly that language that's in the poem indicated some witchy background to those who happened upon her stone. Tally Guide points out that a few of these lines perhaps evoked some of that emotion. I'll cite some of their examples now. The reference to the Stygian River being the river Styx in Greek mythology, the border between life and death, that seemed to conjure some evocative feeling for them. The queenliest dead called her some sort of queen of the dead title, perhaps a witch title. And perhaps the line most significantly witchy is one of the last lines, the doubly dead, the double dead. Some maybe got some implication that there is life after death that is implied in that sentiment, but I believe that Edgar Allan Poe meant that to lose someone so young, their death hurts more, a double death, so to speak. Add in one more detail about how it could be witchy. Elizabeth's grave faces west, so her resting body faces the setting sun. It is ancient practice that graves actually faced east, so they're always facing the rising sun, and the myth states that it's against Christian practice for a grave to face west, towards the setting sun. Tally Guide says, however, quote, The claim is that all Christian burials faced east. This is untrue. Her grave does face west, but this is not a sign of ill respect. Many other tombs in the cemetery also face west, as it was once quite common." End quote. There are reports from newspapers going back for years of journalists trying to see where this legend began, where the seed grew into myth. There's so many variations of the story, that she was a witch who put a hex on her husband, or that she was some sort of good witch in Tallahassee, but none of it, absolutely none of it, is based in reality. She has become the White Witch of Tallahassee, and perhaps that is a blessing in disguise. For a life so short, Elizabeth Bud Graham's legacy is still remembered, still conjured here in the space between you and I. Clearly the family put up the stone so that she would feel significant, and they succeeded. 134 years after her death, she is still here amongst us. In that way, she can still cross that Stygian River and return to the plane of the living, if just for a moment. But soon, the portal will close between us. Halloween is where the veil becomes the thinnest, the space between our world and theirs, and we feel them close to us, whether we mean to or not. When the sun sets on Halloween, the legend is that our world becomes a little more like theirs. The past becomes a little more present. The dead become a little more alive. I am grateful that this show allows us to do that all year round. But on Halloween, well, it's a little bit easier to say hello to Floridians of years past and remember how close their final resting places are to our own comfortable beds. Though the veil will return to its natural state when the sun rises on November, they are still close. And when we say their names, when you hear them through this microphone, somehow they are alive again. And that, to me, is proof enough. Ghosts are real. 
Thank you so much for listening to this Halloween special of Wait Fright Minutes. And thank you so much for listening to this entire season of Wait Fright Minutes. Maybe you haven't listened to the other episodes of Wait Fright Minutes this season. I highly recommend you give them a listen to get you properly in the spooky mood for this Halloween week. It's two days, lots of time to listen to the Wait Fright Minutes episodes. Thank you for listening. And be sure to go to the social media for the show, at WFMPod on Instagram and Facebook, so you can see pictures of these incredible graves throughout Florida and hear their amazing stories again. I will include a link to our Talamato Cemetery episode, so you can go back and listen to the stories of that cemetery and go back and listen to our trip to the Annie Russell Theater where we went searching for ghosts a few years ago. You can also leave reviews for the show on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, and you can also send me an email at wfmpod at gmail.com. I look forward to hearing from you. All of the music and the background audio for this episode are originally composed and created. I'd also like to give a brief shout out to Tally Guide, who wrote that really incredible write-up about Elizabeth Bud Graham. I'll include a link so you can read more about it and see some of the photos that they've taken there. I cited them a lot, and I cannot be more thankful for the work that they've done. And to Weird US and Weird Florida for always being a source of great Florida ghost stories. So go check out links in the episode description to read even more ghost stories for this Halloween week. All right, folks, it may be the end of Wait Fright Minutes. We may be turning off our darkened lights and our spooky costumes may be put away into the closet for the winter ahead. But never fear, there are more Wait Five Minutes episodes ahead of you. We will be back next Monday with a brand new episode. We will be starting a mini-series of sorts talking about history through a very specific lens, through the objects you can find on the shelves of your local thrift store. I am so excited for you to hear the stories I've got working for you. I've got some guests. We're going on some trips. Man, it is going to be a blast. So I will see you next Monday for our brand new mini season. Until then, be good to yourself. Be good to others. Drink more water. Go gator and muddy the water and have a very happy Halloween. Be sure when you say hello to the spirits of Florida in the next two days, you slide that planchette to goodbye. You never know what sort of things this podcast may summon into your home. This podcast is haunted. haunted. (laughs) Happy Halloween.